About Empathy is a podcast about patient, caregiver, and healthcare provider experiences with serious illness. This podcast gives voice to their stories. With each episode, we hope these engaging discussions inspire you to have more empathic, authentic, and compassionate conversations. I'm Dr. Dori Sekaracha, and I'm here with my co-hosts. I'm Dr. Irene Yang. And I'm Dr. Giovanna Siriani. For years, we have worked together, taught together, and learned from each other in our roles as palliative care physicians. Thank you for listening. We're so fortunate to have Dr. Maxine Ratner here with us today. Maxine is a hospice palliative care clinician and educator. It was her own experiences as a frontline hospice social worker that inspired her to begin researching and writing about non-physical suffering. Her work seeks to create more space within palliative care literature and practice for the harder parts of living with and dying from a life-limiting illness. She recently completed her PhD on this topic. Congratulations, Maxine. Her work's entitled Disrupting and Expanding the Discourse, Palliative Care Clinicians' Experiences with Patients' Non-Physical Suffering. We are so excited to welcome Maxine to the podcast today. Welcome, Maxine. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. It's a real honor to be here with you all today. Thanks so much for the invitation. You're welcome. We thought we would start and see if you could tell us a bit about why you decided to focus your research on non-physical suffering and what that term means to you. I think that I can definitely say that why I decided to focus my research on non-physical suffering is really rooted in my own early practice experiences, you know, with patients. Mm -hmm. I can think back, gosh, it would have been going on 12 years ago now. And I knew that my role as a palliative care provider, just as it is the role of all palliative care providers, is to prevent and relieve suffering, because that is what the definition of palliative care calls for, the prevention and relief of suffering, both physical and non-physical. And I remember as an early social worker in the field, kind of looking to the literature that would suggest particular ways of doing this relief of suffering. And I would try out some of those things. And sometimes they would work and often they didn't. And what I came to kind of think more about was how the ways that were potentially meant to relieve this thing called non-physical suffering, which I'll expand a bit on in a bit, didn't always match, you know, patients' actual experiences of it. So let me maybe give you an example, maybe might help answer the whole of your question. So for example, if the literature tells us to support someone who is afraid of dying by helping them reflect on their life and what was meaningful in their life, I would find that that didn't always work because a patient may have had a very meaningful life, but reflecting on that didn't necessarily help them with their fear of dying or death or what happens like after we die. Or, you know, the literature might have encouraged me or us as providers to ask patients to think about past ways of coping to help them cope with a life-limiting illness and that they can draw on those past coping mechanisms. And I found that that didn't work all the time either. I remember an early teacher of mine, a patient, who said to me, you know, Maxine, I've never died before. Why would how I've coped with hard things in the past help me now. And so I think I became curious about, you know, this disconnect that I was experiencing in my practice. The literature was kind of encouraging me to do what I knew 
I was supposed to do as a palliative care provider, and then what I was encountering in my practice. And so I think that disconnect ultimately led me on this very long path of exploring and researching and writing about non-physical suffering. And so when you ask, you know, what does the term mean to me? For me, I mean, it's suffering that may be emotional, psychological, social, spiritual, and or existential in nature. It may be unique to the person, but some of my work is also showing a lot of commonalities in what non-physical suffering is for patients with life-limiting illnesses. And it's things like worries and losses, profound grief, and it's a diversity of fears as well. That's so helpful, yeah, to hear that perspective. Thank you. So, Maxine, now that you've finished your <laughs> dissertation, <laughs> congratulations. <Woo! laughs> how does your approach to addressing non-physical suffering differ from how we currently practice and teach it in palliative care? Whoa. I know, big question, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can say that I don't know if it differs or it expands upon, adds to. I'm definitely someone who thinks that there's place for all of the ways that are available to us to support patients' non-physical suffering. But I think my approach definitely is to kind of specifically explore it. Something that came out of my research is that we tend to jump to ways of relieving it without necessarily exploring it or making space for its expression. As I was kind of speaking to at the end of my last answer, I think, was around a kind of some recent work I did. I did a scoping review, kind of exploring what is this thing called non-physical suffering? Because what I found as a practitioner, again, looking to the literature, is that it often describes suffering as multidimensional, complex, and affecting each person individually. And I think I became to worry that kind of, does that make us not know suffering? Or do we like know suffering less because it's this very complex individual thing? Are there things about suffering that, of course, are always going to be unique to the person, but are there some commonalities? I think I looked at 30 studies in total, only 13 of which from diverse geographies and cultures across the world, diverse countries, diverse research teams looking with patients with advanced illnesses across those studies, illness experiences with loss, worries and fears were commonalities across the spectrum of patients' experiences. And so I feel that that gives us some new insight. We might have always been asking about people what their worries were, but did we think about that as a way of exploring suffering? Or are we asking about fears? You know, a lot of the research shows and mine now adds to it that we tend to hesitate to explore questions that we're not sure how to fix the answers to. And so what might it be like to still make space to ask those questions, knowing we can't necessarily fix them? Let me just add with regards to losses and grief. I mean, we know as palliative care providers that anticipatory grief is a huge part of the illness experience. How much time and space do we actually spend exploring like what losses people are experiencing and how is that shaping their experience of suffering? So that would just be like one example of how I'm hoping some of my work can add to how we might practice. I love how you talk about asking questions, even if we know we don't have the answer, because that's such an uncomfortable space to be in. Mm -hmm. But what about the situation where or there are situations where creating that space and exploring, could that be harmful for the patient or their families? Yeah, well, I think that fear keeps us from exploring it. Do you have like a bit of a further example about what the worry is? 
Yeah, I think for me, you know, coming from a Chinese background where it's very kind of superstitious to even vocalize any kind of fear Mm -hmm. because like vocalizing them is essentially like somehow willing it to happen. Right. I think that it comes from my own kind of upbringing around you don't talk about your fears because that's just a taboo thing to do. For sure. I always love to ask permission before I kind of go in a particular direction. You know, did you want to talk about things you're worried about or feeling frightened about? And for us to not assume that, you know, that everyone wants to have these deep conversations about dying or about their fears, because as we all know, many people will not. But I think that taking definitely that patient specific approach, that Mm -hmm. culturally safe approach around, you know, how to explore that is so important for sure. Maxine, your dissertation and your research, years of work, and, you know, it's hard to distill that down (laughs) in terms of suggestions or tips for the clinicians who are listening. So I don't want to diminish the work because it's been years of your life. I wonder if you have any thoughts. I I think you've already touched on the idea of not shying away from exploring potential worries and suffering losses. So I think that's one suggestion. Do you have other thoughts for clinicians listening? It might be learners, palliative care doctors, people in other healthcare professions. What thoughts do you have or tips for them about how to approach this in their practice? For sure. I love that question. Yes. And there's probably a lot of tips that I am trying to distill Mm. and a lot coming out from what, you know, my amazing research participants have shared with me over the past many years now with a couple of studies I've been privileged to be a part of. I think like other than kind of, you know, exploring worries, fears and losses specifically, even asking, you know, do you feel like you're suffering or in what ways you're suffering? I mean, we know Dr. Eric Cassell wrote about that. You know, we can only know about suffering if we ask the sufferer. Mm. And, you know, we do ask about anxiety and depression on the ESAS scale, but those aren't necessarily someone suffering, right? And so mm. potentially even bringing the language of suffering into our practice on teams with our colleagues, but also with our patients and families, seeing what it means to them. And, you know, I've had patients say, no, I don't feel like I'm suffering. And then they talk about something that kind of ultimately is their experience, but they're not identifying with that word. I think another thing I try to bring attention to is just our own internal experience as palliative care providers when we're encountering patients' non-physical suffering Mm. and how we have lots of feelings when we encounter it. And we don't necessarily get to share those or think about them or consider how they might be impacting our practice. Mm. And something that's come up in my research is, you know, our own assumptions, our own expectations of patients, even feelings of frustration we may feel when we're encountering patients' non-physical suffering that we can't necessarily shift or change or alter in any particular way. And so I guess another tip would be I would invite folks, even if it's initially feeling uncomfortable, to begin to notice our internal experience in those moments. And do they lead us to avoid patients suffering? Because that's what the research shows. And we've probably all experienced that in practice because we're human. But what is it to kind of check in with that within ourselves and maybe resist running Mm. from suffering we can't relieve and just to sit and stay and be with that Mm. is actually really hard. So I think that can be really hard for clinicians 15, 20 years in is what my research participants are telling me. But that's also can be, of course, very difficult for new trainees. 
Maxine, if I could just ask a follow-up, because as you were speaking, I was thinking about myself and thinking about, you know, I would describe it sometimes as feelings of helplessness, of feeling like I I can't help, but I want to help. And so for yourself, you talked about resisting, trying to resist that feeling. There are other things that you do to try and cope with that. Yeah. And I don't know if we can always like resist the helplessness Mm. or like resist the avoiding or running from Mm. suffering. And I think Mm -hmm. that that's really important, right, for us to name and acknowledge feelings of helplessness and inadequacy, which come up in research prior to mine. And my research bolsters those results from other studies is just that that's very real and that that shapes our practice but also our sense of ourselves and potentially our sustainability in the work. If we're Mm -hmm. constantly, you know, feeling internalized helplessness and inadequacy, which in my work I think is a part of our own suffering as palliative care providers, you know, again, it's just so important to name that. And because I think something that else I'm hoping comes out of my work and that my research participants are telling me is that they feel less isolated knowing that they're not alone in this experience of what it is to encounter non-physical suffering in their day-to-day work. And that's really what my work tries to shine a light on, is those day-to-day bedside encounters, no plan, checking in the work we do as palliative care providers and what it is to encounter non-physical suffering and how we navigate that in our clinical work. And so if we could acknowledge the shared sense of helplessness, inadequacy, potentially frustration, other things we're hanging out with, I think that would be really mm. supportive to ourselves. And I think it would also support our practice. That's helpful. Maxine, at the end of our interviews, we often ask the question, if only they knew. Mm. And I think for you, I was thinking, what do you wish all healthcare providers and learners knew in order to better address non-physical suffering in their day-to-day work? You already gave us some tips, but what would be the one thing Mm -hmm. that you really hoped that they knew? I really hope that they knew that there are many parts And this comes directly from what I've come to know from patients, that there are many parts of living with and dying from a life-limiting illness that are intrinsically difficult Mm. and that we're not going to be able to shift or move or change. And it's not because we're not dedicated, skilled, heart-led clinicians. It's because there's a lot of things that they're experiencing that are just really hard. I've come to feel that there can be meaning, there can be personal growth, there can be all the things that the literature talks about as possible at end of life. And alongside that, I really want folks to think about how it's also just intrinsically difficult Mm -hmm. and people hold a variety of oscillating experiences simultaneously all the time and to invite us to not internalize the feelings of inadequacy and helplessness and for us to think about how this is just kind of the nature of the work. The work is beautiful and enriching and we love it. Mm. And it's really hard. Mm. (laughs) I'm kind of trying to make some more space for that. Well, that definitely resonates with me. And when I hear you speak, it's like, oh, yes. It's like a little bell goes off and it's like you put words to how I felt when, you know, dealing with those very challenging situations where in your heart of hearts you want so much to help relieve the suffering, but there's something 
in this particular case that it just doesn't feel like you're getting there mm-hmm. and how bad we feel. Yeah. And like you already mentioned, if you feel bad or inadequate, you might shy away. And mm. so that was very helpful. I really appreciated that. Thanks so much, Dory. Yeah, I think I come to think of it as like a vicious cycle of internal defeat almost around kind of how we show up for suffering because some of it we can't shift or change. Well, thank you so much. This was a very helpful conversation. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for your wonderful questions and for your interest in my work. I really appreciate it. You're listening to About Empathy. This season of About Empathy has been funded by the Golda Fine Award through the Tammy Latner Center for Palliative Care at Sinai Health in Toronto. The Tammy Latner Center for Palliative Care's vision is to allow patients and their families to experience a seamless system of caring through the embodiment of its core values of humanity, collaboration, innovation, and communication. To learn more, visit tlcpc.org. Welcome back to About Empathy. So Giovanna and Irene, I really enjoyed that conversation with Maxine. It resonated with a lot of things that I felt over the many years I've done palliative care and especially the challenges in addressing non-physical suffering. What did you guys think, Giovanna? What was something that resonated with you? I think you've described it as aha moments story. I think there were so many aha moments there. And, you know, I was thinking about when she was talking about opening up space and, you know, allowing the opportunity to explore people's experiences, especially when it comes to non-physical suffering, because I think in palliative care, I think we so naturally go to the physical symptoms, I think, because it's so much a part of our practice. But I think also we go to the physical symptoms because we have a very kind of defined approach to managing the physical symptoms. The majority of the time, there's a very clear outcome. If you do this, this will help relieve physical suffering. And that equation is not so simple when it comes to non-physical suffering. I mean, that really resonated, I think, with me. And I was also thinking about the fact that I don't necessarily ask about suffering. I don't use the word suffering often. I will use the word suffering if a patient brings that up or if a loved one says the word suffering. I'll ask about fears and worries. Do you have any specific fears and worries? But I won't necessarily use the word suffering. So I think for me, that was something I hadn't thought about before. And I wonder about using that Mm. more. So I don't know what both of you think about that. I mean, I really like that approach. I just feel like it might be an approach that when we actually use the word suffering, Obviously, it's a very abstract term, so it would Mm. only work for people who have like a strong grasp of the English Mm. language, Mm. not only like linguistic, but like cultural, like a cultural abstractness to it that you may not get in other languages. Like who knows, like some languages may have 10 words for suffering and some languages may have no words for suffering because it's not something they really talk about. But I like the idea of, you know, acknowledging that someone's having a hard time. That might Mm, be something that's a little bit more generalizable like how are things going are you having a hard time this is my non-linguist like perspective (laughs) on it saying that instead of specifically like worries or fears or distress yeah maybe distress I wonder what other words yeah Suffering is on a monolith, right? Because there's so many different aspects to suffering. So it's uh, kind of hard to put like a fine point on what's the one word. I don't think there is one word, right? Yeah. 
But I think, you know, talking to Maxine has just made me more conscious of when I'm talking to a patient and I can't quite put my Mm. finger on something, but they're definitely having a hard time to dive into it more and not be worried about wanting to fix it or having a solution, like going into that hard space, like we were mentioning earlier. That really resonated with me as well, Irene. I'm not sure if I use the word suffering a lot, but I think the term non-physical suffering means a lot to us because I think we recognize, just like you guys are saying, there's something going on. But how we ask it, I love the way she said she asks permission. Mm. Is it okay if I ask you about what seems to be concerning you or whatever it is, right? It's so patient-specific. It really, to me, was about opening up that space to just ask whatever question and see what resonates with the patient even. For me, it was the latter part of my career. I had the extreme privilege of only having to talk to patients. I didn't worry about physical suffering because the palliative care team did that. And really, I got sent patients because there was a non-physical issue happening. It wasn't called non-physical suffering. It might have been anxiety or depression, but it always led to discussions of tell me what's worrying you or tell me what brought you here today even. You know, they're coming to talk to me. So I realized it was a good place to be because they wanted to talk about what was ever happening. So being given the space, but it takes a lot to learn what to do with that time. Mm -hmm. And to not feel that you have to fix something, that wasn't easy for someone Mm. like me. I think in the beginning, I really did feel so badly if not everybody went away feeling better. Mm. By the end of my career, I did talk to patients about, I wish that we could make you feel better, but we don't always get to that place. But I want this to be as good as it can humanly possibly be. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that is that they're still suffering. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. not easy. So for any learners listening, that is not an easy place to be when you're a clinician. Mm-hmm. It is the exact opposite of why we went into medicine. And it doesn't feel great. But I think if I can take away from what Maxine said, it can feel okay because it's part of the human condition. Mm -hmm. We cannot stop suffering. Mm -hmm. We try to make it as good as humanly possible, but we can't alleviate it completely. Mm -hmm. Can we alleviate some? I sure hope so. And I'm hoping in my career I was able to do that. But giving ourselves permission not to have to fix something, I think just helps us to do this completely rewarding but challenging work. I think gets us to that area or that stage of sort of like acceptance, right? Like we always talk about patient and family acceptance, but I think there needs to be some acceptance from the clinician and to say like, these are the circumstances and this is hard. Yeah, What you're going through is hard. And sometimes that's the therapeutic piece, the acknowledgement. Mm. We've talked about this before around, you know, allowing room for silence and really like bearing witness to their experience and what they're going through, I think is a big part of this. You know, I do, you know, wonder about, you know, other approaches around helping to support people. You know, Maxine touched on this a little bit about the idea of, you know, for some people, perhaps going back to the coping strategies they used in life 
may or may not work <laughs> or looking at their spirituality and yeah. you know how that helps or doesn't help in that circumstance. So I think there's a lot of exploration that needs to happen because there's not a one size fits all. Right. And she mentioned that, you know, sometimes in her practice, she would try something, it would work and sometimes it wouldn't. And that's a good point for us, for all our listeners and ourselves mm. to remember to just be open to trying different things. If something doesn't work, it doesn't mean you failed. Exactly. Good words to end on, Dory. Thanks, everyone. Our clinical experiences have taught us that there is much to be learned in the stories of the people we care for and work with. We hope the story that you have heard today has inspired you to engage in compassionate, authentic, and empathic conversations. Subscribe to About Empathy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, or listen on our website, aboutempathy.com. When you subscribe and rate our podcast, it helps others find us. Each episode will be added to your app when we publish. Please share our podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and health professionals. You can find the notes from today's episode and information about our show on the website. About Empathy is a Kickback Productions podcast hosted by Giovanna Siriani, Dori Sakaracha, and Irene Yin. Recorded and produced by Jackie Skinner. Music by Jerry Finn and Jackie Skinner. The podcast is recorded virtually and funded by the Gold of Line Award through the Tammy Latner Center for Palliative Care at Sinai Health in Toronto. Visit us at aboutempathy.com.